Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming to this morning's session. Uh, today's title is You're Giving Me an MI, Incorporating Motivational Interviewing into Challenging Conversations. Our speakers today are Dr. Romano, Clinical Psychologist and Health Behavior Coordinator at the Denver VA Medical Center in Colorado, and Dr. Schroeder, Clinical Pharmacy Specialist at the Eastern Colorado Healthcare System. So please give them a warm welcome. Okay, good morning everyone. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, so Dr. Romano and I have you for about the next 90 minutes, so we're going to go ahead and just kind of jump right into it. So Dr. Romano and I have no conflicts of interest. We do work at the VA, but today we're here as independent agents, and so what we're talking about here is through our clinical experience and does not represent the greater VA at large. Um, so what we're going to be talking about here today is we're going to review the spirit of MI and how we can use it and incorporate it into our clinical practice. We're also going to list some challenges about using motivational interviewing in long-term opioid therapy uh, taper or dose reduction conversations. We'll review some examples of clinical situations in which we may need to reduce doses or taper doses. And then we'll also discuss kind of some concrete examples of how we can incorporate um, MI and the spirit of MI into opioid dose reduction or opioid taper conversations. So um, we're going to start with just a little bit of a background and some timelines. So as we all know, back in the 90s, we really started seeing um, a lot of marketing of opioids, the uh, pain is the fifth vital sign, and really kind of ramping up the way that we were um, treating pain and the types of treatments that we were using. So we really saw a big increase in the amount of opioids that were being prescribed. So we're all familiar with the, the pendulum swing, right? Uh, we hear this a lot when we're talking about opioid prescribing. So um, we had been treating pain in, in different ways, and then we really started using a lot of opioids, and the pendulum kind of swung all the way over here. So when we started seeing a lot of opioid prescribing in the community in different patients, we started seeing um, unintended consequences, unfortunately. So really briefly, we know some of the different things that happen when we're using a lot of opioids in a lot of different people with a lot of different comorbidities and maybe using high doses. So we started seeing um, accidental overdose, death, um, morbidity, mortality, things like that. Um, but we're all pretty familiar with that. So then what happens is, so we were all the way over here, right, with our large amounts of opioid prescribing. And then we see all of the unintended consequences. So we swing all the way over here. So it brings us to kind of where we're here today. Um, so we start seeing a lot of different initiatives, a lot of different things going on to really try to make sure that we're treating pain in the most safe and effective way that we can. So um, there are a lot of different initiatives. We've got a lot of guidelines, things like that. And then, you know, 2016 is when we really had the CDC guidelines come out. And then um, for us specifically at the VA, we have the VA DOD guidelines really providing some suggestions on how we should be using opioids judiciously. So I'd like to credit Dr. Romano for this slide, which I think is just so witty. Um, so we're talking about the pendulum swing, but unfortunately, sometimes it can really feel like the pit in the pendulum swing, right? So it can feel kind of torturous on both sides, unfortunately. So what we hear in our chronic pain clinic from patients, unfortunately, is I feel like I'm being punished for the poor decisions of others. Some of the bad apples have ruined it for me, who's never done anything wrong. 
And so we want to make sure that we're communicating with our patients and providing rationale um, because that's not a good place to be in. It's not very therapeutic. And then also from our provider side as well, we hear kind of the, I'm damned if I do, I'm damned if I don't. So they're getting a lot of pressure from uh, guidelines, medical board, administration, and then kind of that top down. But then also we're hearing it from the patients that I wasn't prepared for this medication adjustment. Um, I don't know what's going on. And then having uh, a lot of your staff be involved in that and things like that as well. So really we're seeing these two different sides of the coin and it's really not that therapeutic. So what can we do to foster a better conversation, a better relationship about medication change? So with that, we'll kind of jump into the precarious relationship between opioids, our patients, and our providers. So um, we've got, you know, kind of an actual photo here of our first year medical intern. He looks pretty green. Uh, he's pretty excited to be here. And as he presents and is reviewing his patient case, there are a number of different things that he may be thinking about preparing for the appointment. So for some patients, it may be that the risks no longer, or that the risks are now outweighing the benefits, and so it may become important for us to make opioid change. Now this is something that we need to take on a case-by-case -case basis, and then everything in his thought bubbles here are things that he's thinking about um, in terms of when would be an appropriate time to make dose reduction. So there's a lot on his mind when he's preparing for this appointment, and he's made the decision in this case that his patient that he's preparing for, um, the safety risks are outweighing the benefits at this time, so it becomes imperative that we make dose reduction or dose change. And so I want to shift the conversation a little bit for us to kind of check in with ourselves. So let me ask you, how comfortable are you in talking about uh, chronic opioid therapy with your patients? How comfortable do you feel managing pain in your patients? How comfortable do you feel talking about opioid dose reductions with your patients? And uh, just kind of checking in a little bit, you know, do I feel somewhat comfortable, not comfortable at all, moderately, very comfortable? Um, if, if you were to say that, you know, I don't feel that comfortable talking about uh, pain management with my patients or dose reduction with my patients, or I'm not that comfortable um, uh, identifying problems when they arise or uh, knowing what to do with them when they arise, you would be in good company. Um, oftentimes, we don't have a lot of research in this area, but one thing that we do know is residents and fellows often report feeling undertrained in not only managing chronic pain, but opioid prescribing practices, and also identifying problematic behaviors when they arise. Um, hospitalists in inpatient settings tell us that they have a lot of frustration and discomfort specifically managing chronic pain within the inpatient hospital setting. And so we have to ask ourselves, why are these conversations about opioid tapers so challenging? Um, well, just a kind of a few bird's eye uh, thoughts that we have is that obviously chronic pain is very complex and so are the solutions. Um, that's something that we hear frequently throughout the week uh, here. It's something that we um, know in our practices. Uh, but passive treatments like opioids for chronic pain feel very easy. It's easy to write a script and have the patient walk out the door with it, giving them something at least um, in the short time that you have. Those oftentimes feel a lot easier than um, what we know to be really effective in long-term uh, treatment for pain, which is active strategies. And it's also important to recognize that as human beings, change is really hard. 
Change is hard, and uh, changing opioid medications can be very scary for our patients. That's something that we all know, but sometimes we can lose sight of that when we're having a frustrating conversation with someone in our office room. It's also important to keep in mind that opioid medications are extremely reinforcing. So if someone experiences elevated pain, or anxiety, or depression, or even uh, a little bit of withdrawal, it's when they take an opioid medication, a PRN dose, and they receive a decrease in pain, anxiety, depression, or withdrawal symptoms, that is incredibly reinforcing. And this immediately reinforcing short-term solution often outweighs the long-term risk associated with the medication and is a much easier solution in the moment than, say, doing something that um, has a lot more bang for a buck in the long term. And we would think that maybe taking a medication that causes serious side effects without any pain benefit or that running out of medications early, spending a lot of time trying to get medications in the emergency room or seeking other sources or being told by a doctor that you're on enough medications uh, to kill most people, we, we might think that that might motivate a person for change. And then when that doesn't happen, we often make the mistaken assumption that it's the problem then lies with them, that they just, just don't see how much opioids contribute to their problems, or they just don't know the risks. Or maybe we think that they just don't know how to do it, or that they just simply don't care. And when we try to combat that, we'll often try to force insight on them. Um, can't you just see that these medications are hurting you more than they're helping out of frustration? Um, oftentimes, we'll try to force knowledge on them. If they just know enough, then they'll change. Um, or perhaps we try to force skills on them. Well, if we can just teach people how to change, maybe, maybe then they'll do it. If you just exercise more and lose weight, then your pain would be better and you could come down in your meds. And when that doesn't work, we give them hell. If you can just make people feel bad enough or afraid enough, then they'll change. Um, we hear this all the time when providers are frustrated. If you just stay on this path, you're gonna die from an overdose. And the result is the more that we get frustrated and push, the more that they're like, more likely to dig their heels in. And that's just human nature, right? If you tune in and pay attention to maybe difficult conversations you've had with loved ones in the past about behavior change, maybe you've noticed this too. Um, this as human nature is when people try to push us into something, we tend to dig our heels in more. So when we do this, however, um, this can have a toxic effect not only on the relationship with the patient and provider, but this can have a toxic effect in um, the behavior change that we want to see. So this can increase discord in the relationship. Um, and when these conversations come up and they turn into a conflictual pattern, often what we see with our patients is they often protest or listen politely, nod their head, yes, 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 leave the appoint appointment room and do what they wanted to do anyway. Um, bargain, oftentimes we hear threatening. And then when all this doesn't work, they change providers. And this can lead to mutual frustration and dismissal. And what we often hear is, well, on the patient side, my doctor, doctor doesn't care about me or my pain, and the patient and the provider side, they're not motivated and they don't want to listen. This is just addict talk. And these are actual quotes that we hear. And so what we are uh, suggesting, and you might feel that this is a slow lead up to motivational interviewing, um, it is, um, but what we're suggesting is uh, to communicate with our patients in a collaborative, goal-oriented method with paying particular attention to the language of change. 
And our goal is to strengthen an individual's motivation and movement towards a specific goal by eliciting and exploring their own arguments for change. This is a very common quote um, or description of motivational interviewing. Um, this is a, a style of communication that is well suited for opioid taper discussions. For those of us in the room who are uh, familiar with motivational interviewing, there has been an explosion of research in the substance abuse field. We see it in health behavior change like tobacco cessation, diabetes management, weight loss. And we're starting to see it really creep into opioid taper conversation um, uh, appointments as well. Uh, so for our patients, we really believe that motivational interviewing can strengthen a person's motivation and interest in health behavior change. And in doing so, we're eliciting reasons for committing to a taper and beliefs in their ability to successfully complete a taper. And this can increase their commitment to a treatment plan. For our providers, I think this is really important that this can help our providers uh, feel more comfortable and skillful in guiding these very difficult conversations. And it helps support the relationship that oftentimes can be threatened uh, by as challenging of a conversation as an opioid taper. And it, it maintains a patient-centered communication style that in healthcare we want to see. And especially this can help decrease frustration and burnout. You'll notice that when you're practicing motivational interviewing, it feels easier. Uh, you don't feel like you're in the midst of a struggle. You feel like you're doing less work than the patient because they're doing more talking and you're doing more listening. And so we kind of hear about this train of thought. This is uh, hearkening back to the 1600s by Blaise Pascal. People are generally better persuaded by the reasons they have themselves discovered than by those that enter the minds of others. Uh, Self-perception theory, the more people argue on behalf of a certain position, the more likely they are to be committed to it. And if we check in with ourselves about our own lives and our own behavior, that probably is certainly true for us as well. When we think about motivation, well, what is motivation? Um, oftentimes, we kind of will put a patient into a category of either motivated or unmotivated. Um, and, and this is rather reductionistic and simplistic because motivation for change is far more complex than that. It's not just black and white. Um, mo motivation for change should be very important to the person. Motivation for change, um, this person should feel very confident in being able to achieve that change goal. And they should be very committed to change and only when they're ready. Consider that many of our patients are very ambivalent about their opioid therapy. Now, you might have a patient that comes to you and says, I want to get off of my opioids. That seems pretty clear. Um, but consider that many of the patients who aren't saying those things, they might have some very deep ambivalence about their opioid therapy. After all, these are medications that are not entirely benign. Oftentimes, people are experiencing side effects alongside uh, benefit or sometimes no benefit at all. And so when we talk about ambivalence, it's really feeling two ways about something. Um, that we carry around both the pros for staying the same or maintaining on opioid therapy um, and the cons of change or the pros of change, that it kind of leaves us stuck between um, either making a change in either direction. So when we talk about, and you'll hear us say this quite a bit, change talk versus sustained talk. Change talk is language that we hear from a patient um, that is in the direction of change. And sustained talk is language from a patient that is um, that they're likely to uh, are less likely to change or want to stay the same. Um, the 
uh, Prochaska and DiClemente's stages of change theory is not necessarily tied to motivational interviewing, but I find it to be a helpful conceptualization for where people are in the process of change. Um, you'll see that people might vacillate between a number of different stages of change, pre-contemplation or um, they're just thinking about it, contemplation, that they're, or I'm sorry, pre-contemplation, not thinking about change, contemplation, thinking about change, preparation, preparing to change, um, action, taking uh, steps towards change, and maintenance, um, maintaining change. People can vacillate anywhere on the stages of change uh, model at any given hour, day, week, month, year. So our task as provider, and I, I think this is uh, a really useful framework to be hypothesizing about where our patients are. Uh, when our patient walks into the room, we should ask ourselves about a particular topic of change. Um, you know, where are they? Are they thinking about changing their opioid therapy? Are they not thinking about it at all? Or are they ready? Um, and we should be hypothesizing about where they are throughout the course of the visit and throughout the course of our time treating the patient. Motivational interviewing is particularly useful when people are in the pre-contemplation stage of change, and our task is of, as providers is to raise doubt about their current behavior. It's also particularly useful in the contemplation stage of change, and our task there is to kind of tip the balance towards change with change talk and helping them increase their self-efficacy or confidence in being able to make a change. And this harkens to, you know, what exactly is motivational interviewing? And motivational interviewing, um, we have to talk first about what's called the spirit of motivational interviewing. This is um, really the philosophy that guides our conversations in a motivational interviewing framework and is with us at all times. And that is our goal is to partner with the patient. Now what that means is we're, we're avoiding what's called the expert trap, right? We might have expertise in certain areas. I might have some expertise in cognitive behavioral therapy. Dr. Schrader might have some expertise in different uh, pharmaceutical modalities that might be helpful for the patient. But what I'm certainly not an expert on is that patient's values, their perspectives, their experiences, and their life. And so we honor that a patient has their own expertise about their own life and what they want to see and what living a good life means to them. And when we do this, we're really creating an environment of change that's not coercive. We're really trying to see, we're really trying to understand that patient and what matters to them. Um, in the spirit of MI, we accept where this person's at. We're in, uh, we are recognizing the inherent worth of a person who is separate and autonomous from us. Our goal then is not to impose our own values onto another person, but ours, our task is to understand how um, a person's behavior uh, may or may not be in line with their own values or their own well-being. And our job then is to help um, pull out how the discrepancy and help, you know, um, put up the mirror and say, you know, how does your current behavior match up with what's important to you? And we do this in some ways by providing what we call accurate empathy. Now, I'm a psychologist, so I talk about empathy all the time. I'm thinking about empathy all the time. My goal then is to seek to understand a person's unique experience and perspective. It's really to put yourself in someone else's shoes and see if you can understand the world through their eyes. Um, this is especially important when you're talking about really challenging things like an opioid taper. This opioid taper is really scary for you, right? Um, you're not making it to your appointments because it's really hard to drop the kids off at daycare, clean the house, 
and um, do all of your physical therapy exercises. So understanding where the patient's coming from. The beautiful thing is you don't have to be exactly right. You can just try. People usually give you um, a lot of wiggle room for error. And if you make a mistake, they'll correct you. Um, this also means that we don't have to necessarily approve or agree with everything that the patient says or does or wants. But what it is is we're, we're saying we understand what you, where you are right now. The spirit of motivational interviewing is one of compassion. Now this was added later on um, in motivational interviewing texts because it was important to the authors that motivational interviewing was not used for, say, marketing tactics or, um, and, or you know, I want my husband to bring um, me presents every day. Sorry, but that's not <laughs> what it's used for. But what we, what we use motivational interviewing are things that are in line with their own well-being and their own values. Um, it's one of evoking from the patient. So motivation resides with the patient. It's our job then to bring it out, whether or not that's within their own perceptions, goals, and values. And so it's helpful to maybe sidestep this idea that um, we're assuming that they lack something that we have to give them. Our goal then is to really bring it out in the patient. We know that we're doing it well when we're talking less than the patient, and which is nice because we're working hard all day talking a lot. So when they're talking uh, more than we are, we're listening, um, that's when we know we're headed in the right direction. And especially when we hear change talk, when we hear language in the direction of change, that's when we know that we're hitting gold with that person and we wanna see more of it. <clears throat> So just briefly looking at some motivational interviewing skills, we'll kind of go over some motivational interviewing skills, and then we're gonna look at three different cases and try to give as many examples as possible. Um, there's no real right or wrong way to do motivational interviewing, so we're gonna be giving you some examples along the way, um, and feel free to use some of those examples if you want to. We're usually asked, asked for a lot of examples, so we wanna put it out there. But, um, or, so these are some basic motivational interviewing skills. We want to use open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries with our patients. We'll go over what those are. Open-ended questions, these are questions that can't be answered in a single word, yes or no. Um, this also includes tell me more. So what this does is it invites a conversation on a specific topic of your choosing. So motivational interviewing truly does have a direction in mind. Our choice of language and our open-ended questions and reflections help guide a patient towards a specific topic. Um, so these oftentimes will give us more information than closed-ended questions. So um, think of the example, um, are you take your, taking your medications on time versus how are you taking your medications? you're more likely to get a lot more interesting information by asking the open-ended version of that question. Saying to someone, um, do you have a good relationship with your wife is a lot different than, yeah. tell me about your relationship. You're likely to get far more information by using open-ended questions and that information is very useful and you're gonna be storing it away for later. So we provided some examples of open-ended questions. So um, asking someone, what concerns do you have about your opioid medications is one we often ask. We're so busy telling them what our concerns about are, it's helpful to say, you know what, we've talked a lot about our concerns about your opioid medications, but what about that is really meaningful to you? Um, saying things like, um, how has the effectiveness of your medications changed over time? 
can help open a conversation about, yeah, my medications aren't, medications aren't as effective as they used to be, and I'm concerned about that. Providing affirmations is a wonderful tool that we can use in our motivational interviewing toolbox. So when we provide affirmations to a patient, we're acknowledging their very real strengths, efforts, and positive intentions. And these must be genuine and personal. People can really tell when you're not being genuine. And, and sometimes it, frankly, can be hard to find them. But simply saying to someone, you've been in a lot of pain this week, and you managed to show up today, um, is an important affirmation to be able to give someone. Um, what these do is it, they say, I respect you as a person. I appreciate what you bring to the table, and I really care about you. It really helps support the patient-provider relationship that has the potential to be undermined during opioid taper conversations. Um, this affirmations can really help support our patient self-efficacy. It doesn't matter how important change is to a person, if they have very low confidence in doing so, they're not likely to meaningfully engage in behavior change, simply because they don't think that they can do it. And so when we provide someone with an affirmation, it's really saying, you know what, I recognize a strength that you have. Um, when you say to someone, how were you able to manage stay alcohol-free for two whole weeks when this has been a struggle for you? Um, uh, and you're able to say, wow, that was really impressive. Sometimes that might bring out a sense of pride in a person that might not always otherwise be there. So some examples of affirmations. You've managed to go to work in your daughter's softball game despite having a really bad pain week. I imagine that that wasn't easy. Um, so being able to uncover these for the patient can be helpful. Um, oftentimes our patients have a lot of respect for us as their providers, and we can, when we acknowledge their strengths, it can go a long way. Reflections are something we consider to be the bread and butter of motivational interviewing. Um, these are comments that we make in the form of a statement, not a question. Um, we use them very strategically to bring out change talk, and they can be very powerful in doing so. So that might be something um, like just repeating back what the person said, that's a simple reflection, or a complex reflection is restating what a person said but adding something to it. That might mean adding the emotion behind the word or adding uh, some meaning to the word. It has a tendency to really push the conversation towards change if you get it right. Um, so sometimes you're making just guesses about how to move forward, and that's okay too. Again, if you get it wrong, the patient will let you know, and that's okay. Uh, people who are really proficient in motivational interviewing, you hear them use many reflections compared to open-ended questions. And this can feel like a pretty big paradigm shift in medical care, particularly when um, we're taught to assess, 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 assess. You know, it, I don't think it really matters what, um, what discipline you're in. We're, we're trained to assess, ask, ask a lot of closed-ended questions. Um, when we reflect, it can feel different, but once you get the hang for it, it can feel really good. So here are a few examples of reflections. Um, everyone in your family has said they think you should stop taking pain medications because of the effects they see, like falling asleep at the dinner table last weekend. You're not so sure, but it makes you think twice. Um, summaries, briefly, it's kind of a way to take a collection of all of the change talk um, elements that you've heard in a conversation, put it together in what we call a bouquet. So we're kind of picking around the sustained talk weeds and picking the change talk flowers, putting together a little bouquet and presenting it back to the patient. It's a helpful way to kind of move forward to some next steps with a patient. This can be done pretty quickly. So you kind of can say, you know, um, I'd like to summarize, summarize and make sure I'm getting this all right. 
Your pain has been getting worse despite getting on more medications. On the one hand, you'd like an increase in your methadone. And on the other hand, you notice it making you feel sleepy and unmotivated during the day. Your wife doesn't like seeing you dependent on a medication and you worry about your doctor's concerns about affecting your heart. Where would you like to go from here? So I realize that we're just blowing through a lot of different motivational interviewing skills and I imagine that a lot of these do feel familiar to those of you who have um, had a lot of exposure to motivational interviewing, but we want to highlight one more that we think can be really useful, particularly in a short amount of time. And one of the things you'll hear us keep talking about is motivational interviewing can be done in a short amount of time. And that is to assess importance and confidence. We talked about motivation and how it's, um, how it's complex and dynamic. These are two important aspects of motivation that are helpful for you to know as a provider if you're going to see a patient move forward. Um, so let's see. Keeping in mind that motivation can change from day to day, moment to moment, appointment to appointment. But what we ask someone, on a scale from 0 to 10, how important or confident is um, coming down on your opioid medications, for example. Um, and when they say they're a six, we can say, well, what makes you a six and not a four? We strategically ask them to give us, to describe to us why they are not um, a lower number and what that will get you is change talk. Um, and then we can ask them, what would it take for you to get up just one or two more points? Again, what that's going to bring out is more change talk. We'll illustrate this in one of the examples. So it's important to be asking about this in both how important change is and how confident it is. Um, I'll, I do a lot of tobacco cessation, and one thing that I could hear almost 100% of the time is uh, quitting smoking is 10 out of 10 important to me, and I feel 2 out of 10 confident. And you wonder why someone hasn't engaged in any kind of behavior change around their tobacco use. They don't feel confident. It's very important. They don't feel confident. Um, oftentimes, we see this in our patients with um, taking opioids that aren't particularly helpful anymore, um, or they might be experiencing side effects that are outweighing the benefits. So um, we're talking a lot about change talk. In order for us to be able to respond to change talk, we have to listen for it. And we have to really tune into what that is. So uh, we like this quote, we have two ears and one mouth so we can listen twice as much as we speak. Um, if you're used to getting a lot done in a very short appointment time, this can be extremely uncomfortable. Being, uh, being comfortable with silence or talking less in, in an appointment can take a lot of practice. So um, again, what we're looking for is change talk. Now, something to keep in mind, if there's anything that you take away from this talk, one of those things should be the more someone uses change talk, the more likely they are to change. And so if you are a, a, a miner and you're digging for gold, just talked about Neil Young earlier, this, this kind of came up, um, that the gold is change talk. And so in, in a conversation with a patient about an opioid taper that we're trying to move towards, the more we can get that change talk, the more likely they are to commit to a taper. And so we'll just touch on this. There are a lot of different types of change talk that we can hear. So um, desire or I, um, I want to get off of these opioids, ability to do it. Um, I know I can do it if I set my mind to it. I've made changes in something else, and I know that those skills will help me in cutting down. Sometimes they'll give you reasons. Um, if my employer finds out I take opioid medications, I might lose my job. Or um, uh, they might talk about need. Um, I, know if that, I know that if I don't stop using my mother's hydrocodone with my oxycodone prescription, I'm putting my life at risk. 
Um, oftentimes we'll hear commitment talk, and you'll notice that these kind of progress towards stronger uh, change talk. I had a bad pain day yesterday, and I surprised myself when I kept it at two tabs of oxycodone versus my usual four. Um, or you might see activation or steps towards change. Um, and then uh, finally, you know, we can be able to applaud a patient when they say things like, I went to physical therapy yesterday without taking my PRN oxycodone, and it went okay. So I really like this picture because, so as a pharmacist by training, I think in school I might have had one lecture in my communications class briefly talking about what motivational interviewing is. So um, for psychology, psychologists are really the experts in this, and so sometimes for those non-psychologists in the room, it can kind of feel like this. We don't really, what are we listening for? And it can be kind of challenging to actually listen for change talk. So hopefully through um, some examples, we'll make it a little bit easier. So I'm gonna kind of read this verbatim and it'll make sense when we go to the next slide. So I know these medications are risky. I watch the news and it worries me to see how many people have gotten hurt. But I've been on this dose for years and I trust that my doc was doing the right thing. I mean, yeah, the constipation can be pretty brutal sometimes, but the docusate helps at least a little. My pain just keeps getting worse and worse, and the dose I'm on helps less and less. Eventually, I do want a different treatment and to come off of these medications, but right now, what I really need is a higher dose. So um, we've illustrated in this uh, stoplight for you, the green indicates what could be considered change talk, and the red is what we would consider to be sustained talk. And what we really want you to take away from this slide is oftentimes when we're having these conversations with our patients or when we're introducing uh, the topic of behavior change or medication change, we often can get a combination of both change talk and sustained talk. Um, this is the most common scenario. We, it's very rare that we would get all of one or um, all of the other. So um, what we really want to do here, and going back to Dr. Romano's analogy, is we really want to try to pick the bouquet of the change talk flowers and avoid the sad red weeds here, okay? So we want to kind of draw out the patient's intrinsic motivation and really draw out more change talk by referencing some of these green statements and getting them to talk more about that. Because once you get excited about talking about something and your strengths and what you're good at and what you're passionate about, it's easier to stay on that track than to stay on the sustained talk track. But we'll go through this in our examples as well. So um, some overall challenges here. So again, being a non-psychologist and kind of learning this more throughout my clinical practice and through CE as opposed to growing up with this type of training, there are some challenges that we often think about, especially when we're just learning a new skill or when we're just implementing this into our practice. Um, so we're gonna go through some examples here, um, and we're, or we're channeling our inner Dwight Schrute. So if any of you are Office fans, hopefully that will make sense. If you don't watch The Office, then you can ask someone next to you uh, about what we're about to do. But basically, sometimes we hear providers saying that, um, I've got 15 minutes with my patient, and using all these open-ended questions, it takes too much time. Fact, motivational interviewing has been shown to be effective in improving desired outcomes in as little as one session or 15 minutes. And in our experience, putting that time up front can have long-term benefits with the 
patient over the course of the taper. We also sometimes hear our provider saying that I have a bullet point list of things that I need to get done during an appointment. If I'm using open-ended questions, then it's really hard for me to guide the appointment to where it needs to go. The outcome of the appointment is no longer clear. The fact is, is integrating motivational interviewing and tre treatment preparation increases the likelihood that they'll uh, participate in our desired outcome and engage in, in change. And it does outperform traditional advice. So keeping in mind that if our end goal is for our patients to actually engage in change, motivational interviewing is, is more likely to net the results we want. It feels unnatural to do this if we're not used to it. Uh, it's hard to listen throughout an appointment as opposed to give information or give knowledge to a patient. It can be really hard. Fact, yes, motivational interviewing can feel very difficult and it's something that gets better with time and commitment to practice and you don't have to be perfect. Another thing too is I've already made the decision that the benefits no longer outweigh the risks of the opioid medication. I know that I need to work with my patient to reduce these medications, but I've already made the decision that we have to make the change. The fact is, a small investment in time upfront using motivational interviewing um, can support better outcomes in the long run. So we're going to talk about some different taper discussion considerations and ways that we can actually uh, prepare for these appointments when we're having these conversations. So we really need to make sure that we're starting from the ground level. And we really need to make sure that we're taking out all of the assumption in the conversation, especially if this is the first time that you're introducing the idea of opioid dose reduction or opioid dose tapering to your patients. So what does the patient actually know about the medication? What have they been told? Who has told it to them? And then as we take a medication over a period of time, certainly we would hope that the opioids were prescribed for pain, but now 10, 15 years into treatment, what is the medication actually treating? Are we treating pain still? Are we treating anxiety? Are we treating depression? Are we, are we managing withdrawal with opioids? So really starting from that ground level and figuring out where we actually are with the therapy can be very helpful. Um, another thing, too, that you know, we really like to say is that we want to ask questions, and when we listen for the response, that we want to listen to understand the patient's story as opposed to listening to provide a response. We don't want to just kind of whip out one-liners after having a patient tell us something. It's important for us to really reflect on that and listen to understand the patient's perspective. So it goes back to the whole, we have two ears, one mouth thing. So just kind of keep that in mind. And then it's important for us to really make sure that we're providing a consistent message to our patients early on in the process and then frequently throughout the process. So being consistent, providing um, empathetic responses and really being there for the patient can uh, make the process go a little easier. Another important factor to consider is to validate, validate, validate this person's very real pain. This is important in the process of pain treatment uh, from when they first walk in the door till when you um, terminate therapy with the person or ter terminate treating with the patient. Um, but this is especially important when you're talking about an opioid taper. Saying to someone, you have very real pain and we're gonna work together to offer treatments that are safe and effective goes a long way, especially when we often hear patients walking out of these conversations asking themselves, does my doctor believe that I have real pain or they don't know how much pain I'm really in? 
Um, so validating that real, real pain can help them feel understood um, and that uh, they can feel a little more safe in acknowledging that you, you believe their very real pain. Um, this isn't necessarily the same thing as agreeing with um, what they want in treatment. Um, we can deliver unwelcome messages, um, perhaps about a taper that they don't really want to hear. We can do that in a patient-centered way. We think it's imperative to instill hope. Um, uh, opioid medications uh, should not be our pain therapy in a vacuum. Um, all medications or all treatments should be offered in conjunction with other things. A comprehensive pain management plan is the best approach. And so um, we do have research coming out that's also suggesting that um, perhaps over many years, um, discontinuing opioid therapy, we don't necessarily see changes in their pain ratings over time, and sometimes we even see improvements in functioning. We've certainly seen this in our practice, enough to be able to say, um, you know what, the good news is that pain doesn't always change when you come off of your opioid therapy, and you might actually feel better when you don't feel as sedated, or if you're not tired during the day, you might actually have more energy and you're less constipated. Um, we think it's important to join the patient and commit for the long term. Um, chronic pain is a disease where people have long-term relationships with their own chronic pain. We should expect to have a long-term relationship with our patient, depending on your setting. Um, so being able to say, you know, I know that this taper is not what you want to hear. I want you to know I'm going to be with you throughout this process, and we're going to work together with other team members or other disciplines to make sure that you feel as safe and comfortable as possible. It's important to express empathy. Um, we talked about this before, but saying when you deliver the news about, you know, we think a taper might be indicated, if, especially if it's not sitting well with the person in front of you, you can say things like, reflect that back to them. Um, These medications can be scary, or this isn't what you want to hear right now. Um, that helps a person feel very understood. Um, and it's amazing that when you express empathy, it's almost like uh, the tension in the room deflates. And then you can start, when someone feels really understood, then you can really start working on an action plan. Um, it's important to recognize their autonomy, again, reinforcing the spirit of motivational interviewing. But one way that we can do that is through shared medical, uh, just shared decision making. Uh, Will Becker and the West Haven VA talks about macro decisions versus micro decisions. We love this. Um, the macro decision might be the decision that you've made uh, that a taper is medically indicated. Uh, but we can actually hand over some of the, the decision to the patient. We can say, okay, um, you know, you know your body best and, and what, you know, what doses seem to make sense for you. So which medication would you like to decrease first? Your morning dose, your evening dose? When would you like to do that? You might even be able to have the patient contribute to the schedule of decreases and when that makes sense for them in their life. And it's important to mind your body language. We think this is important. So, um, you know, oftentimes people pick up more in body language than they do in the actual uh, language that you speak. So paying attention to, um, you know, how they might perceiving, how are they perceiving you being in your computer, right? So if it's efficient to use your computer, that's wonderful. Um, however, maybe in a difficult conversation, it's helpful to ditch the computer, face the patient in a warm, open, receptive manner. Um, paying attention to, are your arms crossed? Are you leaning back? Are you scowling? These are all messages that actually come through pretty clearly to the patient. And when we are open and receptive, leaning into our patients and making eye contact, they're more likely to feel heard and understood. So with this, we want to make sure that if you're able to 
to maybe try to give a little bit extra time for an appointment. So if you're able to schedule your patients into a new patient slot, if you anticipate that the conversation is going to take a long time or perhaps might not be well received from the patient, just allowing that extra time. Now certainly we realize that this isn't um, possible in every scenario, but it would be the ideal. And then also offer alternative options for care. And so something um, that we want to point out with this is that um, sometimes it, it's important for us to kind of lay the foundation for non-opioid or non-medication strategies early on in therapy, even prior to beginning the opioid taper. Because if you say, you know, uh, I, we're going to start decreasing your opioids and I'm sending you to mental health um, at the same time, the patient may perceive that as um, more of a negative. They may uh, not uh, understand the benefit or understand the, the necessity of having both of those on at the same time. And then use your team. So even in private practice, you are not an island. You are referring patients to different sites. You're utilizing other colleagues. And certainly, if nothing else, you went to med school, you went to professional school with other people, right? You can, you can use your listservs and ask for advice. So never feel like you're alone in this. Um, and your network is bigger than you may give yourself credit for. Okay. So really briefly, why is a psychologist and a pharmacist talking to you about this today? So Dr. Romano and I work at the Denver VA, and we work in what's called the Chronic Pain Care Clinic. And so it's a pharmacy psychology um, pain clinic. So we do not have a, diag or a diagnosing or a prescribing provider on staff with us. So we work closely with the patient's primary care because in Denver, a lot of our primary care providers are the ones writing the opioid prescriptions. So we work with our patients to provide um, CBT, different coping strategies, behavioral strategies, and then pharmacy, we work with the medications and work to optimize all different kinds of medications, opioid, non-opioid. And then we also try to serve as a pain home. So if we need to coordinate referrals or different things like that, we do that all through a centralized location. And so that's why pharmacy and psychology are talking to you here today. Okay, so we're going to jump into the cases with the last about 40 minutes or so that we have with you this morning. So a couple things for us to be thinking about. Now, we've gone over a lot of information this morning, and so everything we talked about in the, you know, ideal rainbow setting would be we'd be able to get all of it in in every appointment, right? But we understand that that's not realistic. So we're trying to kind of pick and choose different strategies and different things that we can do in appointments of any length of time. So this is really meant to be kind of a reference for your clinical practice, but we understand that we might only be able to focus on one or two of these strategies in any one given appointment. Now, we do use a lot of abbreviations. So um, the abbreviations down here in the corner are the ones that we're going to be using throughout our case scenarios. Uh, CR stands for complex reflection. O stands for open-ended question. AP stands for ask permission. CT is change talk, and then ST is sustained talk. Now, we're going to do kind of an interesting back and forth. Um, so I'm going to be reading the case background. I'm going to be reading the statements, and then Dr. Romano is going to be providing the annotation for the cases. This will make much more sense when we get into it, um, but the clinician and the patient responses are color-coded for you up on the screen, and we'll just kind of jump right into it. 
So our first patient case is a 64-year-old male. He has a brachial plexus injury of the right arm. He has a history of chronic kidney disease, um, a traumatic brain injury, psychosis NOS, and then he has obstructive sleep apnea that he's not treating. He's on really high doses of opioids that are not really particularly efficacious any longer. Um, he does live at home in his own house with his wife. He engages in pain psychology regularly, mental health appointments, and all of his other care appointments. Um, his PCP wants us to re help reduce the dose because he's on kind of a big dose, but his provider wanted us to know he was inherited. And so this provider did not start the patient on this regimen. So um, just to clarify that for the group. And what we will add is that these cases are based on real life experiences. We wanted this to feel as genuine as possible, but we've changed a lot of information um, just for protection of privacy. So um, when we do the math, it's about 630 milligrams morphine equivalent daily dose. Um, he's not treating his sleep apnea. He refuses to wear his CPAP. He's getting limited functional benefit from the medication, and he's really requesting higher doses from us. Uh, his PDMP and his UDS are appropriate, but unfortunately, based on his fluctuating mental status and his self-report, we're unsure how consistently he's taking his medications or how consistently he's taking his long actings. Um, and like I said, uh, he's compliant with all of his other medical care. And then the decision is mainly to reduce the dose in any capacity. Okay, so C stands for clinician and P is for patient. So, um, and we'll kind of have it color coded throughout the rest of the examples. So the clinician kind of jumps in in the appointment and says, we know that you've talked to your primary care provider about her worries about your current pain medications. Tell me about those conversations and what you understand. So the provider is trying to orient the patient to a safety discussion by asking an open-ended question. She thinks my dose is too high, but the meds aren't working anyway. I need a bigger dose. I've been taking these meds for years. Uh, the dose isn't too high, it's too low. And when we're tuning in and listening for sustained talk versus change talk, what we're hearing, hearing here is very clear sustained talk. You're frustrated. You and your doctor aren't seeing eye to eye. You haven't been getting the relief that you want from the current dose, and your doctor thinks that the dose is too high and may be dangerous for you. So um, we hear a complex reflection. The provider has added some emotion to this complex reflection by recognizing the frustration that the patient is um, experiencing and is reflecting back that the doctor is really thinking that the dose is too high and has added that it's dangerous. I mean, yeah, it's scary when she talks about overdose. I hear it on the news all the time, and my wife brings it up, but I disagree with both of them. So here we think this is a little bit of a mix of a little bit of change talk. Um, there's some concern about uh, hearing about overdose, but in general, this patient doesn't particularly buy into that. You want to live, and your wife and doctor worry that the meds could be doing more harm than good. So we know what they're worried about. What are your concerns with this medication? Um, so here we hear the provider use a complex reflection and try to open it up to um, move away from hearing about what everybody else thinks and, and to really pull from the patient their own concerns. I'm concerned that my pain is uncontrolled and the meds help less and less. I don't like being nagged about these meds every day, mostly by my wife. My wife shakes me, shakes me awake at night because she's worried when I don't wear my CPAP. So here we hear a strong sustained talk, and this is kind of stepping into some change talk. We're not necessarily hearing that it's coming from the patient, but we hear that it, the wife is worried. 
these medications aren't helping as much as they used to, and it may be seriously impacting your breathing to the point that your wife is very worried. And we hear the provider grab that change talk, or, you know, hints of change talk with a complex reflection. Yeah, she says I choke and stop breathing at night. That's pretty freaky. And here we have our first solid change talk of the conversation. That is scary. Since we know that these medications can affect your breathing, what can we do together to change this? So uh, the provider is starting with a complex reflection and is hoping to shift the conversation perhaps into some problem solving with an open-ended question. I don't know, but what I'm on now isn't working. So and we get more sustained talk. It's a challenge. Your pain is not being managed well on your current dose, and the meds may be dangerous for your breathing. Your doctor and your wife are concerned, and it's even causing some conflict with your wife. Would it be all right if we talked more about some of my safety concerns in detail, and I provide some options for your pain? So here we are, the provider summarizing uh, the change talk that we've heard, but also recognizing the ambivalence uh, from the patient. Um, and then asking permission to provide more information. Asking permission is an important motivational interviewing strategy because when we ask permission, a patient is inviting that information in. We're not just forcing it on them. They're saying, yes, I want to hear it. And so what we're hearing from the patient is, um, we're hearing that the, the patient thinks that the dose is too low, um, but we do hear that there is some fear around uh, talk of overdose. Um, and that these medications and what's been going on so far is causing some marital discord. The patient wife is worried and is doing some things about it. Um, from the provider, um, the provider is reflecting that um, you haven't been getting relief, but also making a note that the dose, this, these very high doses, are not resulting in effective uh, pain management. This person is not functioning. And uh, the medications are causing some discord between the patient, uh, along with the wife and the primary care doc. And the provider wants to then kind of start with talking about concerns, sharing more information for the patient so that they can help make a more informed decision that's based in their values. Um, and so when we talked about stages of change and the importance of hypothesizing about where our patients are, in fact, well, I think that that's helpful at least, we kind of assess this person to be in the pre-contemplation stage of change. But we're at least getting more information about where they are, where there might be some areas to open the door and start talking a little bit more about why this patient's current behavior or why the current opioid dose isn't necessarily aligned with their values. Um, and um, let's see, let's see. Um, so what we want to do at this point is to kind of invest some time getting more buy-in from the patient. Uh, we haven't necessarily heard some absolute contraindications to opioid therapy that would require us to do a rapid taper. Um, and so what we want to do with this patient is initiate, shore up some of his resources, work on motivation for change, try to get some buy-in, and then eventually initiate a very slow taper over a course of time. So case two is a 56-year-old obese patient with chronic low back pain and chronic bilateral knee pain. He has a history of alcohol use disorder, which is in remission, and major depressive disorder, which is in partial remission. He takes a relatively low dose of oxycodone IR, five milligrams, four times a day. He lives with his adult daughter, and he transferred his care to the VA because he was discharged from another pain clinic because he uh, consistently was overusing his opioid medications. He continues to overuse his opioid medications when he's anxious, and when he experiences pain flares. The referral question to our clinic was rotate to a similar or lower oral morphine equivalent dose. So 30 milligrams uh, morphine equivalent daily dose. So uh, 
we're doing okay, so we, we've got kind of a set goal with us here. Um, but he is overusing his medications, and he does have mental health comorbidities. Uh, he gets moderate functional benefit when he takes the medication. He is on a walking regimen, which is good. And his PDMPs and his urine drug screens are appropriate. He is involved in substance abuse treatment program. He's going to group, and he's also working closely with a counselor one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and so after kind of weighing the risks and benefits and knowing his history, uh, the decision was made to taper him slowly um, to discontinuation. So uh, we start the conversation as the clinician saying, you've told us that there are times that you take more medication than you are prescribed, and you're concerned about this. Tell me more. We start with an open-ended question to try to get the patient's concerns about their current behavior, particularly about when he overuses his medications. Yeah, I keep running out early, and my daughter gets really angry with me when that happens. My daughter's actually been giving me my medications each day because I can't trust myself with them. It causes a lot of conflict between us. Also, I go through withdrawal every month when I run out, and I really don't like withdrawal. So here we hear a beautiful bouquet of change talk. It's wonderful. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> So this has been a bad cycle for you and your family. Uh, it causes a lot of conflict. And I hear you saying that you want something to change. Um, so the provider really brings out more change talk, or hopes to, by um, a complex reflection. I'd like to be on lower doses, but I'm so scared. My pain is so bad, and the withdrawal makes me so sick. I get in fights with my daughter when I'm not feeling well. So here we're starting to uncover why change is difficult for this person. Um, they're very, uh, this patient is very scared of making a change uh, to their opioid medication. He doesn't necessarily feel like he has self-efficacy in order to um, manage pain without opioid therapy, um, and that can be very paralyzing. We also recognize, or he's honoring, that it's causing arguments with his daughters, which clearly maintaining a healthy um, relationship with his daughter is a value of his. On the one hand, your pain has been really bad and you're anxious about the idea of coming down or coming off of your opioids and what that will do to your pain levels. And then on the other hand, you recognize that these medications are doing you more harm than good. So what we're hearing is um, a very helpful tool when we hear ambivalence from a patient. That's a particular type of complex reflection, a double-sided reflection. And one, that double-sided reflection speaks to both sides of the ambivalence. On the one hand, um, uh, it's scary and he's anxious about coming off of his medications and then always finishing with the change talk we hear. Um, on the other hand, you recognize these medications are doing you more harm than good. So starting with the um, sustained talk and finishing with the change talk, always finishing with the change talk because you will get, that's what the, uh, the patient will continue discussing. Exactly. I'm open to other things, but I feel like I've already tried everything. So we hear a little change talk, but again, sustained talk. This person really doesn't feel like there are other things he can use to help manage his pain. We can certainly talk about other ways to shore up your resources for dealing with the pain and the anxiety that you feel about it. But for now, I'd like to talk to you about making a change to your medications. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being um, not important and 10 being the most important, how important is it for you to discontinue your opioid medications? Um, so here the provider um, uses uh, the importance and confidence rulers to really get a sense of where the patient is, starting with importance. Probably an 8 out of 10. I don't want to keep fighting with my family. So positively, we hear that um, coming down on opioid medications is pretty important to this person. Tell me why you're an 8 and not a 6. 
Um, we strategically ask why the patient is um, a higher number, not a lower number, because that's going to give us, get us more change talk. My daughter is a huge part of my life, and the meds are making it hard for us to get along. So yeah, it's pretty important. And as expected, we got some more change talk from that. The conflict about your opioids strains your relationship with your daughter. You don't want to fracture your relationship with her. Now, using the same 1 to 10 scale, with 1 being not at all confident and 10 being the most confident, how confident do you feel that you would be able to successfully discontinue your opioid medications? So the provider really um, makes sure, make sure to reinforce that change talk by reflecting it back to the patient and then taps into another important piece of motivation, which is how confident this person is. I'd say 4 out of 10. This has been going on for a while, and I don't know why I'm still taking these, but I'm just so afraid of the pain that I know I'm going to feel. So, and, and this is where the ambivalence comes from. This is a person who just really doesn't feel that confident in order to manage pain without opioid therapy. Um, and so a good rule of thumb is it's not an exact science, but a good rule of thumb is that someone's really, you know, drifting into the point of readiness around the 6 out of 10 confidence. So um, our important task then is to help improve or build up this person's self-efficacy in order to manage pain without opioids. Um, you don't see much benefit in taking them, but you're anxious about an opioid taper. At the same time, you have some confidence that you can do it. What makes you a 4 out of 10 instead of a 2 out of 10? And then again, asking why they're more confident rather than less confident will actually help us get a sense of, you know, um, it helps us pull out some uh, language around confidence for that patient. Well, I've been sober for alcohol for 14 months, and that wasn't easy at first. But I've been able to do it with the help of my group and my counselor. My relationship with my daughter is important to me, so I feel motivated and committed to staying sober. And usually when I set my mind to something, I can power through. And that investment in asking that open-ended question about confidence really did net some change talk that we can be useful. And as that can be useful, and as providers, it's important to be filing that away and keeping all that information as uh, in mind so that we can provide an affirmation or that we can um, kind of start to build a plan that helps support this person's self-efficacy down the road. You have a lot of good coping skills to make changes. What would move you to a higher number? And so this, um, this question really elicits this person's own ideas about what will help them feel more confident in being able to manage their pain without opioid therapy. I think if there were other ways for me to manage my pain and the stress of the pain, then I think that would be helpful for me. So here that really guides us to um, what might be a plan. Um, we, can st we can start talking to the patient about other ways to help manage his pain. Um, we can start talking to the patient about stress management, and based on everything he's told us um, about um, pain-related anxiety, about pain flares, that really helps us move in the right direction. I've looked at your chart, and there are some other options that we actually haven't tried yet. Would it be okay if I shared some of these other options with you? And again, this provider is asking permission so the patient can invite it in. Whoops. Okay. Um, so a few important things that we've heard from the patient he feels really out of control with his medications. Um, even with uh, his daughter controlling the dose, he does run out early. Um, he doesn't feel like he has a lot of confidence managing the pain without opioids. And this is causing a lot of marital, or I'm sorry, uh, distress, family distress with his daughter and some conflict. And that is not in line with his values of maintaining a healthy relationship with his daughter. Um, this patient is really afraid of pain and withdrawal. Um, so there's a lot of fear that we're picking up on that would be important to address. Um, the provider said a lot of things, but um, basically the summary reflection really is 
He's recognizing that the meds are doing more harm than good. And, and I think that the complex reflections here really uh, uh, boil down into that. Um, this provider used importance and confidence, which is not only informative in terms of getting a lot of change talk from the patient, but it also helps us get more information that we can work with. And this provider asked permission to provide more information on new resources. Um, this patient said that he was 8 out of 10 important and 4 out of 10 confident. Um, we really assessed him to be in the contemplation stage of change. Um, so what we want to do is be able to kind of address some of his needs in terms of giving him other resources. So working with physical therapy um, about movement so that he can't get a, he's not getting his flared up working with pain psychology on some of his pain-related fear and anxiety, and also activity pacing, um, engaging in some other stress management techniques like relaxation training uh, to work on his sympathetic arousal. These are all examples of things we might be working very closely on with the patient um, so that he feels like he has more confidence to, confidence to manage his pain while he's coming down on opioids. Um, let's see. And I think, so, and this is the type of person that we um, really thought of as somebody who uh, we would put on a slower taper um, so he can shore up his resources to um, manage his pain. So this is our third and final case of the day. And so um, this one is a little bit kind of uh, a curveball. So uh, you'll see what we mean here in a minute. So this is a 36-year-old female uh, divorced patient with chronic low back pain, intermittent abdominal pain. Uh, she has a questionable seizure history. Um, we haven't been able to get the records. Uh, she has personality disorder, not otherwise specified, major depressive disorder, migraine headaches, and she has a history of alcohol and benzo misuse. So um, through her primary care provider, she had been getting hydrocodone, acetaminophen, 5325, she'd been getting four a day as needed. She's also getting a number of other different types of medications, bupropion, sertraline, uh, gabapentin, and sumatriptan. So she recently switched PCPs uh, because of a miscommunication uh, related to pain medication. She has a history of psychiatric hospitalizations times two in the past 13 months, secondary to suicidal and homicidal ideation. And she does have a behavioral flag requiring police escort to appointments. Uh, she does consistently present for mental health follow-up. Um, and so the consult question was rotate to a similar or lower morphine equivalent daily dose. Now, she's prescribed 20 milligrams of morphine equivalents through her um, PCP. Um, and she is requesting oxycodone sustained action because all the other medications do not work. So um, when the PDMP was reviewed, it was unexpected. The patient had been getting a prescription for phenobarbital, oxycodone, immediate release, and lorazepam from a different prescriber. Um, she had been refusing urine drug screens, uh, and uh, despite education on the policy that this is a safety monitor monitoring practice. And then also, um, we'd been trying to get more information about where the seizure diagnosis was made, and uh, the patient had been refusing to articulate which hospital um, had been refusing to put in a release of information for that. So um, after this information came to light, the decision was we were going to discontinue opioid medications due to safety risks and duplication of therapy. Um, and then also something that's important for this case is that, um, you know, if 
further assessment was um, appropriate, we would refer this patient to a substance abuse treatment program um, if that became um, evident that it was appropriate. Okay, so for this scenario, um, the, the clinician had reviewed the case and so um, had brought in a different clinician, so two clinicians into the appointment to make sure that we're providing support um, for the clinicians and then also for the patient to make sure we're streamlining the conversation. So um, C1 is clinician one and C2 is clinician two. So clinician one begins the appointment by saying to the patient, based on what we've discussed, the risks of hydrocodone outweigh the benefits at this time. Um, and the patient then responds with, I'm careful with my medication. The stuff you're giving me doesn't work. You are putting me in a dangerous position if you take away my meds. If something happens to me, that is on you because you took away my meds. Think about that. So that's clearly sustained talk. Um, and <laughs> we included this case because these are real scenarios that we do see. So we want to make sure if we're talking about the full gamut of um, scenarios that might come up. Uh, so clinician two jumps in and says, this is a really hard message to hear. You're worried about what you will feel like if your pain medications from us decrease or stop. And so the provider tries to elicit maybe some change talk with a complex reflection, just making an estimated guess about where to go next. I'm not worried. I know something bad will happen to me and it'll be your fault. Clearly more sustained talk. Didn't quite take the bait there. <laughs> we want to be able to address your concerns so that we're on the same page. Uh, what bad things do you think will happen? So here the clinician is really trying to join with the patient. Um, you can, even in this room, probably feel how there's discord in this relationship. There's discord in the uh, clinician room. And so um, the provider's really taking a step back and joining with the patient by saying, tell us about your concerns then. I cannot and will not live without my meds. The pain is too bad and there will be no point to live in this kind of pain. Um, so. Um, Sustained talk, but clearly more than sustained talk. So the clinician, the first clinician jumps in and says, it's hard to imagine managing your pain effectively without being on these meds. We can certainly talk about other options in more detail. But first, I'm concerned about what you said before. Are you having thoughts of hurting yourself or someone else? And so the provider is recognizing that um, the purpose of this, com this appointment needs to change. And so the priority here is now assessing for safety. We are hearing some um, language around self-harm, most likely, or um, hinting at it, at least. And so the conversation does need to pivot towards safety risk assessment. This provider does this fairly seamlessly by starting with a complex reflection and, um, and saying, we can talk about other options for your pain, but is now shifting to um, a safety risk assessment. The patient says, maybe. I'm not going to be safe without my meds. I'm only safe because of them. If something happens to me, it's on your conscience. And so it's important to keep in mind that um, threats of suicide or self-harm can be driven by a number of factors. And we don't necessarily know um, the intent behind those statements. Um, for some reason, for some people, that might mean, yes, this, this conversation really makes me feel like I want to hurt myself. And sometimes this can reflect, um, it can reflect an effort, effort to advocate what they perceive as their needs, right? Um, a negotiation tactic. And we don't necessarily know as providers where this is coming from. And so, you know, these are challenging situations for us. They're challenging for everyone. It doesn't matter how long you've been practicing in pain 
management. Um, and so our, our guideline really is we take every statement about threat very seriously. It doesn't matter if we believe um, necessarily that this, this is true, truly suicidality, we take it very seriously and we respond to it as a very real risk. So the providers begin to pivot here and what we see is when you say things like that, I take those comments very seriously. It's a really tough position to be in. We are concerned that your medications that you're on are dangerous and you're worried that being off the meds will be dangerous. We've had several pain treatment options that we can still try and we believe that you can feel better off of the opioids that we're prescribing. But if you're having thoughts of hurting yourself, we need to get you to the hospital to be evaluated for safety. And so again, the provider pivots from a complex reflection to expressing empathy to um, trying to initiate a conversation about assessing for safety. Now, you're, people here at this conference have a wide variety of clinical um, setups and backgrounds at the VA. Um, we are in a clinic where um, Dr. Schrader can pick up the phone, message me, or simply um, holler and I can come into the room and start assessing for safety. I can walk someone down to the emergency room on the first floor. Not every clinic is set up that way, but the important thing is, is that your clinic is set up for safety procedures prior to getting in a situation where you might have to assess for safety. So having the plan set up ahead of time um, and even having the opportunity to say to, say to other people in your practice, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a patient coming in um, and I don't know if the conversation is really going to go well. Um, would it be okay if you were just kind of available in case I need to draw upon you for help and support? So in this case, we kind of finish out the conversation with the patient after she says, thinking of being off the hydrocodones and not getting any oxys makes me think of suicide. So the clinicians, again, kind of pivot and rely on each other for support and also relying on their policy and procedure and say, I'm concerned that you would make statements like that. I want to make sure that we end this appointment in a safe space. The second clinician says, I'd like to spend some time talking about exactly how you're feeling and making sure that you're safe at this time. I'm going to ask our nurse on staff to come in and walk with us to the emergency department for an evaluation. So again, just kind of relying on your own internal clinic policy and procedure to make sure that you're um, having that team support or um, recognizing what is available to you um, should safety concerns arise and should we need to escalate to make sure that we're ensuring safety on behalf of our patients. So, you know, that last example is kind of a tough example, but the other examples as well, it's a lot of different discussion and a lot of um, having tough conversations with our patients. So I think it's important for us as clinicians when we're in this situation, when we're having difficult conversations, to make sure that we're taking some time for self-care. So continuing a medication or a treatment that does more harm than good is not good medicine. So you've done the safety assessment for these patients and you feel that the risks outweigh the benefits. In these patients in which opioid tapers are important or are necessary, it's important that you feel empowered to stand on your safety assessment and to say, I'm doing the safest thing for my patient and I'm expanding other menus of options for my patients even though I'm decreasing the dose of the opioids. So we all know the do no harm and that's kind of what we all live by in clinic. Um, and then set boundaries for yourself and for the patient. So certainly never feel that it's inappropriate in a heated conversation to say, in order for this appointment to continue, I'm going to ask you to lower your voice or I'm going to need you to sit down if we're gonna be able to continue on with this appointment. 
And if you ever feel that the boundaries that you're setting, um, if it's a conversation that uh, is a little heated, you can always hit pause, take a step out of the room and say, I'm going to step out of the room for a little bit, um, and then I'll come back in, in a few more moments and we can continue to talk about it. And then, um, again, just making sure that you never feel obligated to stay in a situation in which you feel is no longer therapeutic or um, in worst-case scenario where you're feeling that it's escalating to, um, you know, violent words or you're feeling physically threatened. You can always stop an appointment. That's always something that's well within your rights as a clinician. And then... Um, uh, you're not responsible for the actions of others, so you're providing information and you are providing the best care that you can um, with the information that you have available to you. So um, you have done the safety assessment and you're making these medication adjustments in order to keep them safe for the long term. And so it's your responsibility to provide the safest and most effective medication regimen for your patients. Um, and then uh, changing a medication or removing a medication does not mean that you're removing pain treatment. It means that you're shifting pain treatment. And then again, I said this before, but you're not an island, and so lean on your team members, your staff, um, your listservs for help and for support if you're encountering challenging patient situations. So some final remarks. Uh, difficult conversations aren't easy, but can be easier uh, with strategic communication techniques. And we think motivational interviewing is one of those techniques. Um, and that preparation is one of the most important things we can do. So making sure that we um, have those motivational, in, mo motivational interviewing skills polished in our back pocket, making sure that we're giving ourselves time in the appointment and prepping very well for the appointment. Maybe that means having conversations with other providers on this patient's team. That can take a lot of time, but making sure that everyone is on the same page uh, can do a lot of good. Um, and keeping in mind that we're not an island, reliant on your colleagues and peers. So with that, we'd love to take any questions, comments, reflections, uh, anything you'd like to ask from us. Thank you all for being here uh, this afternoon. Um, so a recent uh, article came out. This is, uh, if you go back to the reference side, yep. uh, Joe Frank et al. I don't know if this was the Journal of Internal Medicine or the other. Because that one, I think it was one. Annals. So he did a qualitative study. Yeah, Annals of Internal Medicine. So that's reference number eight. Yes, and he, that's not this one, but there, he did another study where he actually looked at a qualitative, uh, a qualitative analysis of um, patient and provider uh, responses, and that's very interesting too. So look at Joe Frank at all. He's one of our colleagues at University of Colorado. And mm -hmm. was there another question uh, right here in the front, or sort of four back? Yep, you. Sorry, <laughs> gray shirt. <laughs> Yeah, I appreciate that comment, and, and um, I think that oftentimes the importance and confidence ruler is something that 
um, you know, people in brief motivational interviewing trainings get, um, but it's not always the best tool to use in the moment, um, particularly if somebody is really in the pre-contemplation stage of change. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, Kate. Great question. I'll just repeat the question. So the question is, what suggestions in terms of um, managing or making safety plans would we give to providers that maybe are in private practice, don't have a, an emergency department, et cetera, et cetera, close? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I, Dr. Schrader is more experienced working in one of these settings, but. Um, you know, knowing if uh, in your state, if you have to have like a certain licensed professional uh, come do an assessment is one option. Sometimes people will do this over the phone. Um, sometimes calling 911 to your facility, um, an ambulance will come and, and take a patient to an emergency department. Um, I think it really depends on your state and your clinical setting. Um, you know, in the past, even if a patient isn't on site, we have called to do uh, welfare checks. The police, of police officers will go to someone's house and do a welfare check-in. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of different options. I think that they're um, really the best option is to have licensed uh, mental health professionals on site to be able to do safety risk assessments um, and have easy access to say in the VA, we have suicide prevention coordinators we can reach on. But yeah, any other ideas about that would be great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a great comment. So her comment was um, for community providers or um, uh, providers kind of outside, you know, academic medical centers, um, et cetera, um, are there any trainings available for uh, verbal de-escalation or, um, you non know, nonviolent communication. Nonviolent communication, safety assessments and things mm -hmm. like that. And that's actually a really wonderful question. Mm -hmm. I... Um, because I, I know that it, it's, it is a rarity to have security on site um, for most clinics, certainly. Um, and so making sure that as a provider, you're mm -hmm. as prepared as possible. That's a great question. I, mm -hmm. and, and I'll probably point out that on the slides, you'll, in these, risk, these risky situations, you'll see that we're jumping really quickly. To, we're going to the emergency room. Um, in practice, what we'd be doing is we'd probably be having more of a conversation with that patient. And we'd be trying to get a sense of where they are. And depending on your level of comfort and education and um, background around assessing for suicide risk, you might just be spending a lot of time with that patient having more of a conversation. Um, I, but I'm not, I'm not aware of any training specifically that I could recommend um, what myself. I would, yeah, what I would, and I think people probably have other, people probably have a lot of good ideas about this, um, and it's gonna vary by state by state. So um, what I would recommend is maybe reaching out to some of your state professional organizations and seeing what is available to you. And it might be possible to have um, some trainers come in and actually work with your clinic. Um, let's see, I think uh, you had your hand up back there, yeah. Did you say verbal judo? Okay. Like yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. 
No, that's great. That's great feedback, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For motivational interviewing? Oh, yeah, so great. So, um, uh, so the question was about trainers, uh, training of trainers for motivational interviewing. Um, one really great resource is um, Mint, uh, the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. Um, it's a, a large network of people who um, practice and train in motivational interviewing, both um, uh, within private and academic and VA settings. Or, and if anybody has other ideas about that, and please feel free to jump in there. I, sorry, I don't. I think you. Yeah. That's a great. That's a great question. Mm-hmm. Probably. So the question was, shouldn't we have just sent this patient to addiction medicine first off? And the answer to that is. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Or who should be doing the assessment in terms of um, substance abuse treatment or things like that? So with this particular example, um, the uh, she the consult came in without us knowing about these other aberrant behaviors. So the PDMP was run kind of in preparation for that first appointment. And so um, in this particular example, the reason why we started with this was because we were the first clinic that was engaging this patient in this type of conversation after we discovered that information. Now, in the ideal setting, this information would have been kind of clear from the beginning and then based on um, different risks and, and different medications that the patients had, and also with her history, it would have certainly been more appropriate to have somebody do a full um, uh, substance abuse or opioid use or alcohol um, abuse uh, uh, assessment. Yeah, and what I'll say is, and one of the challenges in our setting is, um, yes, we do have a substance abuse clinic. We actually don't have um, easy access to opioid replacement therapy. Um, And so we do have a challenging disconnect with uh, people who are prescribed opioid medications um, and um, they usually will walk into a substance abuse clinic and, and hear, oh, you have a problem. They say, I don't have a problem. I'm prescribed this medication. And so they'll walk right out. And so we really do have a challenge with patients who are referred to substance abuse services. They usually don't go, our patients. And so, yeah. you, know, you know, a lot of these wonderful models having, um, you know, uh, addiction medicine within primary care is a wonderful tool to be able to use. Um, but oftentimes we end up being a little bit of a band-aid in the absence of that in our clinical setting. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, something that so wonderful comment. So the comment is, um, so our addiction medicine colleagues, our primary care colleagues, and then us as you know pain practitioners, we're kind of in this nebulous gray zone of who who's managing what and who manages what at what time. And so um, I think so. Right now, I think we're just really in this gray zone because. Um, the resources for actually even diagnosing opioid use disorder, we're just getting those kind of ramped up 
um, in our current day and age. And then also, um, I do think though there are some interesting studies and kind of population models that are going on right now that are using um, buprenorphine, naloxone in some of more of those gray zone patients. And so hopefully within the next couple years or so, we'll be able to have more concrete evidence that we can say we can use these medications in these gray zone patients with you know, um, either benefit or no benefit, and then that can help kind of guide us in terms of um, yeah. w which populations are most appropriate. But it's, it's kind of a, a quagmire. And, you know, we, we showed a statistic that, um, that it's, been, um, it's been estimated that 40% of long-term opioid users meet criteria for opioid use disorder. The CDC guidelines say the first-line treatment is opioid replacement therapy. And yet I imagine that in many settings, we actually can't get that um, to our patients. And so... Um, you know, it's probably my number one frustration in our setting is just constantly trying to advocate to leadership that's very strained within an opioid crisis to, um, to deliver resources and things like that. Yeah. Oh, sorry, what's that? Yeah. Right, right. Recommendation five. Yeah. Yeah. You have an abstinence program, we have an abstinence program, no one uses MAT. Mm hmm. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Okay. That's a great question. So, a couple comments. Uh, first was um, buprenorphine for pain. Uh, there are some changes in the way that we need to get the the DEA X um, for the waiver, and so kind of keeping that in mind. And then um, just kind of addressing overall challenges for safety regarding these conversations, um, physical safety and safety of staff. And so mm -hmm. the, it's a really, so my, my, so as, as a pharmacist, this is something that when I got into this, the setting that I'm in right now, it was, it was a huge learning curve. And so something that we have found that is helpful for us is when we introduce the topic of opioid reduction or opioid taper to discontinuation, the patient's already on the regimen, right? And so unless there's, you know, a cocaine or an overdose or um, other kind of hard red flags, we can take a little bit more time introducing the topic with the patient so it's not they come in and then at that appointment, then they're cut by 30%, 50%, you know, whatever the, the decrease may be. And so sometimes saying, here are my bullet-pointed concerns. Let's talk about that. Let's think about other things that, you know, we can do because at um, our October fill, we have to make a change. And then, um, and then that way there's a little bit more time the patient can, there's more time where the patient can join with you and in those concerns. And then, you know, um, so, so it's not as um, jarring per se. And then sometimes that can make it mm -hmm. easier in terms of communication. It's never easy communication, but mm -hmm. it can make it easier. Yeah. And I, I think it's a real concern. Safety is, is a real concern. We hear terrible stories about violence enacted on providers 
um, when opioid therapy maybe isn't continued. And, and these, are, these are challenges. At, at the VA, we have two big, beautiful um, uh, metal detectors that are never on. <laughs> um, so these are, these are real concerns. And, um, you know, I think drawing on some of our limited tools, I really do think when we take a motivational interviewing stance, you know, we really are joining with the patient. And it does it really does protect the relationship. And even if we spend more time talking with patients about their care, and we spend more time at least trying to understand them, it can tend to de-escalate those situations. Um, and then the other thing we rely on is, if, if we're worried, we don't see patients after hours. We make sure we surround ourselves with other staff. If a patient starts elevating their voice, um, the, the clerk right outside is trained to send a quick IM, are you okay, and is trained to be able to uh, call for outside resources if the, pay, if the provider doesn't respond back. And so depending on your setting, um, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for someone to say, I don't feel comfortable with this patient encounter, I'm going to come have a nurse sit in with me. Um, because that, us having a team response might make me feel more help or more safe and supported. Yeah, sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Great comments. Um, I, I yeah. Oh. What's that? Oh yeah, federal facilities. It's it's a it's a no go zone yeah. for carry. But of course, you know you can right. ask somebody. Oh, well, but are you packing? And they're like, Oh yeah, I have like five knives here, and they like put it on the table. Right, yeah. right. They're the police. The police at our facility tell us, Oh yeah, they're all carrying. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's it's challenging. I know. You, um, Pam, you and the pink. You had your hand up. I didn't wanna. Um, did you still have a question? A comment? Oh, yeah. yes. Huh. Oh, that's awesome. That's I, I hadn't heard about that. So her comment was um, working for Indian Health Service is that um, they have kind of reached out um, in terms of more like peer support. So it's a, it's a non-clinician that they've trained in certain skills that can help with that. Um, and so um, kind of relying on, on peers, which often can communicate messages uh, more effectively than, than clinicians to, to other patients. Well, it looks like we're a little over time, so oh, yeah. we'll probably finish up there. Thank you all. Yeah.